You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and with me today is Dr. Enrique Hernandez, Chairman of OBGYN and Director of the Division of Gynecological Oncology at Temple University in Philadelphia. We are going to be discussing today some of the challenges of mild, moderate, and severe cervical dysplasia in the clinical care of our patients that are female. Welcome, Dr. Hernandez. Good morning. So cervical cancer as the number two cause of death of women around the world makes all practitioners want to try to prevent their patients from getting it. So maybe let's start with a little bit of how you recommend screening patients who may have had a history in the past of mild dysplasia. Well, a patient that has had a history of mild dysplasia in the past needs to be followed a little more closely than patients that have had history of completely normal pap smears. So the patient with a history of, of dysplasia in the past, mild or otherwise, I would recommend that she has a pap smear at least once a year. And that's for a patient that had that in the past and it has been clear. I mean, the, the subsequent follow-up has been normal. And then from then on, follow-up will be a little bit closer, at least once a year. What if you have a patient who's had a history maybe of a year of low-grade or mild dysplasia and their pap smears continue to come back low-grade? six months, a year later. What would you suggest in the management of that kind of patient? Well, if, except for adolescents, and adolescents, it's now defined by the American College of OBGYN and by the American Society of Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology as a woman that is younger than 21 years of age. Except for that group, if a woman has a pap smear that shows mild dysplasia, and in, in pap smears, the nomenclature is a little bit different. They actually call it a, a low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, or LSIL for short. In that patient, a single pap smear of LSIL requires that that patient be examined under magnification using equipment that is called a colposcope. So they have to undergo a colposcopy that will examine the cervix under magnification to try to identify if indeed LSIL it's all they have. And when the Bethesda system switched from the mild dysplasia to the low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, why do you think they changed the nomenclature? To better align with the natural history of the disease. When you have an LSIL and that is confirmed on biopsy, what you're really seeing is a vital infection with the human papilloma virus. In reality, you're not seeing yet a neoplastic change. Once you go to a high-grade lesion, an HSIL, or moderate to severe dysplasia, that's a patient where the uh, virus is uh, producing a neoplastic change. Do you think that this new Bethesda system is more helpful in clinical guidance for these patients? Oh, it's, it, it's much better. The, the Bethesda system has developed over a number of years, actually uh, now over a decade, which initially the Bethesda system was just to have a uniform nomenclature for reporting pap smears. Now, as of 2006, it also includes a better defined evidence-based guidelines on how to manage these patients. Yeah, and you're talking about the ASCCP guidelines from last year? The ASCCP guidelines that actually the meeting was in Bethesda in September of 2006. 
the guidelines get published throughout 2007, and eventually they publish some uh, guidelines booklets and uh, CDs and DVDs. Those were published towards the end of 2007. And most of these guidelines are suggesting that with HPV testing, you may be able to follow, for example, someone with atypical cells a year later instead of six months, which is what we had used to do. That is correct. So if you have a patient whose pap smear is negative, for example, but you chose also to do HPV testing, and that's only recommended for women over the age of 30. Because in younger women, the prevalence of HPV is so high that doing HPV testing is not going to be helpful. But if the pap smear is negative and the HPV is positive, then you can repeat the HPV test in one year. And the reason for the one year is that the median time or the time when 50% of patients that have an initial infection with HPV that will clear the infection it's eight months. So you don't want to repeat it too soon because it will be, again, positive. And going back to mild dysplasia, as we were talking before, what do you think the role of HPV typing is in that particular patient population? At this point in time, none, because what the evidence base that the research has shown is that if the pap smear shows LSIL, that over 85% of those patients will have oncogenic HPV. So LSIL, it's synonymous with having an HPV infection. Now, that's a pap smear. A certain percentage of patients that have LSIL on a pap smear will actually harbor a high-grade dysplasia when you do a biopsy. How often do you think that happens? Close to about 20 to 30 percent. And so in the patient, taking back one step, how accurate do you think the pap smear is at predicting low-grade SIL? For example, false positives or false negatives? That's a little more harder to answer. I think the way to look at it is that if you have an LSIL on the pap smear, about 20% of them will have a high-grade dysplasia on the biopsy. The other group, the majority, will have mild dysplasia on the biopsy, and still another group will have normal. Do you find at your institution, because I find this at mine, that I'll have a, a low-grade pap smear, but then the pathology will not be using the Bethesda system and is read as mild, moderate, or severe? Yes, because the Bethesda system for LSIL and HSIL is for cytology. For histopathology, the preferred nomenclature is actually CIN1, 2, and 3, or cervical intraepithelial plasia 1, 2, and 3. If you're joining us now, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health. We're speaking to Dr. Enrique Hernandez, the chairman of OBGYN at Temple University, and we're discussing the challenges of mild and moderate dysplasia. We were just talking about the likelihood that the pap smear is accurate for low-grade findings and therefore mild dysplasia, except in about 20% of patients who may be upgraded, correct? Yes. So the question comes, let's say you have a patient with both a pap smear and colposcopy that is showing low-grade change. How do you follow that patient if all of that is consistent with mild dysplasia? When would you see them back again for another pap smear or colposcopy, I guess is the question. Actually, the important uh, issue here is in the past, if a patient had a pap smear that showed LSIL and the biopsy and colposcopy showed LSIL, that patient, uh, some people will have treated and treated either with cryosurgery, laser, uh, excisional biopsy. Right now, the guidelines are that if a patient has CIN1, that that patient can be followed with pap smear every six months until you get two negatives or HPV testing, HPV DNA testing at one year. If any of those come back abnormal again, then they go back to another colposcopy. 
So the question is, because we are going away, I think, in practice from treating mild dysplasia and instead are watching it, the chance of it regressing sounds like it's quite good. The chances of regression of, of mild dysplasia are higher than 60%. So to determine the patient that actually requires therapy in low-grade situations or mild dysplasia, how would you determine that patient? So that patient, that initial colposcopy, it's satisfactory or unsatisfactory, and, but you, the only thing you find on the biopsy is mild dysplasia. And that patient you follow again six months later has mild dysplasia again. You're going to repeat the colposcopy. Follow that patient again, and in six months, mild dysplasia again, you're going to repeat a colposcopy. And you will continue to do that, and the guidelines state that at two years, then you can opt to treat at that time. Or continue to follow. It really depends on how the patient feels about the follow-up. And their compliance, obviously. Yeah. I mean, and some patients you know, are, are it's inconvenient for them, and they may decide to be treated. But the reality is that if the only thing you find is mild dysplasia, these patients can continue to be followed. There's one special group, and it's the patients that are HIV seropositive, the HIV patients. Those patients, once they get LSIL, it never goes away. Mm-hmm. And those patients, we will continue to examine and follow rather than doing procedures, which we did in the past. And we ended up ending up with a hysterectomy and still seeing LSIL on their subsequent pap smears. So those patients will continue to follow very closely, but without therapy. And frustrating for both physicians and patients in that situation, for sure. Yes. What do you think is the natural progression towards cervical cancer? Do you think that mild dysplasia becomes moderate dysplasia in those of patients and then cancer itself? Well, again, the science for this has become better and better. So what we know is that mild dysplasia represents an HPV infection. Eventually, proteins are produced by that HPV infection inhibit tumor suppressor genes like retinoblastoma gene and the p53 gene. Once that happens, that's when you have progression to moderate to severe dysplasia. Once the gene, the HPV uh, genetic material, integrates with the chromosomal material, the genetic material of the host, then is when you see invasive cancer. So there's a progression from having a HPV infection to having a neoplasia caused by malfunctioning of tumor suppressor genes to have an invasive cancer because the HPV chromosomal or genetic material has incorporated or integrated to the host genetic material. Thank you so much to Dr. Enrique Hernandez, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing these challenges in cervical dysplasia treatment. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to the Advances in Women's Health from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. 
So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly Sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.